This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It was January 1992 when a young Birmingham-based estate agent met a mysterious man posing as a house buyer at a vacant property in northwest Birmingham. Within minutes, the man had attacked and subdued her. She was bound, gagged and blindfolded before being forced at knife point into his waiting vehicle. He kept her in a crudely constructed wooden coffin, a box within a box. But she was not his first victim. This is the story of Stephanie Slater. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity. And this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. It was 11pm on the 31st of January 1992. Stephanie Slater had been abducted by an unknown assailant. Her abductor had chained her inside an elaborately booby-trapped wooden box inside a box, letting her out only to eat and drink. This was the longest period of time that she had been continuously confined to the box. And she was in agony. Twisted and contorted to fit into too small a space, her arms were handcuffed above her head and attached to a metal bar at the top of the box. This was supposed to be the final day of her captivity. She had been placed in the box at 8am. Her abductor assured her that he would return by 9.30pm once he had collected her ransom payment. She waited. She became convinced that he had abandoned her to die in his dilapidated workshop. She began to panic. Then she heard some noises in the distance. She strained to hear what was making the sound. She then heard the metal shutter rising and footsteps moving towards her. She didn't know what she would face once her kidnapper opened the padlock and removed her from the box. In the last episode, I covered the case of Barbara Mackle, a wealthy property development heiress who was kidnapped for ransom and buried alive by her abductors. Both Stephanie and Barbara's cases are unrelated in as far as geographic location and perpetrator. But they both shared themes of kidnapped for ransom and being buried or confined in a very small space. Don't forget to check out Barbara's episode if you haven't already listened to it. Stephanie Slater was born in 1966 and was adopted by Warren and Betty Slater, a working-class couple living in Birmingham in the West Midlands in England. In December 1991, 
25-year-old Stephanie started a new job as an estate agent at Shipways Estate Agents on Walsall Road, Great Bar in Northwest Birmingham. She was doing well in the role and had made a positive impression on her colleagues and her manager, Kevin Watts. Wednesday, the 22nd of January, 1992, began as an ordinary day for Stephanie. But she could not have imagined the ordeal she was about to endure. It was cold that day. Winter in this part of the world is cold, marked only by a few hours of daylight, punctuated by grey skies, wind and rain. On this day, Wet Wet Wet's Goodnight Girl was the number one song in Britain. The Adams Family, starring Angelica Houston and Christina Ricci, topped the film box office. When Stephanie arrived at work that morning, the first thing she did was to check the shared diary in the office. The usual booking mechanism in place was for a client to make an appointment to view a property either by phone or in person. As the appointment time drew near, one of the estate agents or the receptionist would then confirm the appointment by phone. If the client didn't confirm, then it was likely that the viewing would not take place or would be rescheduled. One appointment stood out to Stephanie and her colleague Jane. It was an appointment to view a residential property on Turnbury Road, a two-minute drive from their office. The appointment was for a Mr. Bob Shortall and had been made by letter rather than by phone. There was also no phone number provided by the customer for them to confirm the appointment. This was quite unusual. The two-story property had been vacant for some time and Stephanie volunteered to take the appointment. She encouraged Jane to accompany their manager Kevin on a valuation appointment and that she would take this viewing appointment. It was a decision that she would come to regret for years to come. Stephanie arrived at the property and parked her car outside. She approached the middle-aged man standing by the front door and asked if he was Mr. Southall, to which he said yes. She apologised for being a little late and opened the front door with the key before placing it in her back pocket. The two stepped inside and she began the tour of the house. The house itself was unremarkable and the property had been on the market for several months already. Sensing that the client wasn't really interested in the house, Stephanie encouraged him to view the top floor of the property. She hoped that this would speed up the tour and end the viewing more quickly. It was cold and the house was unheated. She wanted to get back to the warm office. The man asked her some questions about the property and Stephanie stepped into one of the bedrooms while the prospective buyer inspected some of the other rooms. She walked past him and started to walk down the stairs. Strangely, it was at this very moment as she was moving to close the viewing that the client suddenly seemed to have a renewed interest in the property. He asked her, what's that up there? And she turned back to where he was standing to see what he was looking at. He had been pointing to an innocuous hook on the wall. When she turned back to face him, his demeanour had changed completely. He lunged at her with a knife. 
Stephanie participated in an episode of Crimes That Shook Britain in 2008. She described the incident as follows. She said, quote, He seemed to grow bigger, huge. He seemed to be flying through the air at me. His face is all contorted. It takes a couple of seconds for your brain to register that this is danger. And it was absolute and total sheer terror. Because you realize now, oh my God, that's the only thing that goes through your head is, oh my God, end quote. In describing the attack, she said that it seemed as if he had flashes of silver coming out of his hands. Then she realized that the flashes of silver were actually weapons. In one hand, the man held a knife, in the other, a flat chisel with a hook. Stephanie said that she knew that she had to get past him if she was going to escape the situation. She recalls him shouting and screaming at her and waving the weapons close to her face. He was using all of his strength to overpower her. In this moment, Stephanie recalls that she was sure that her attacker was going to either cut her or rape her. She wanted to defend herself but realized that there was nothing around her that she could grab to use. Her face was cut superficially in several places and she could see that some of her hair had been cut by the blade and it was now falling all around her. They began to fight over the weapons. Stephanie managed to wrestle the chisel away from her attacker but lost it as it was flung across the room disappearing from view. She separated the knife from her attacker and clutched it in her hand. He continued to shout at her and Stephanie recalls thinking that what she was holding in her hand is the very weapon that could be used to kill her. Her attacker was growing increasingly desperate to regain control of the situation and of his victim. He violently jerked the knife from her, dragging the blade through the palm of her hand, cutting her in the process. Instinctively, Stephanie looked down at her hand, and that's when the man jumped on her, finally subduing her. The man grasped a handful of her hair and wrenched her head back. They were in the upstairs bathroom now. He pulled her over the side of the bathtub, ordering her to swing her legs over the side until she was fully enclosed inside the bathtub. She was on her back in the bathroom, and from this position, she caught her reflection in a mirror hanging high on the wall. She saw herself crouched in the bathtub with a blade to her throat, and she knew that the situation was now dire. He warned her that if she started screaming, he would slit her throat. It had only been 15 minutes since she opened the door to the property and the house viewing had begun. But now, Stephanie was cornered and bleeding in a bathtub with a knife to her throat and her attacker looming above her. She said to her attacker, All right, you've got me. Don't harm me. Please remember I'm human. She said that in that moment, her words seemed to have some impact on her attacker. The man bound Stephanie's hands and tied a noose around her neck. He was using it as a kind of makeshift dog collar to direct her where he wanted her to go. He forced her down the stairs one step at a time. It was at this stage that she realized that this wasn't a simple robbery and that it wasn't her car or money that he wanted, but her.
At the bottom of the stairs, he blindfolded her, put sunglasses over the blindfold and pressed the knife into her side. He forced her into his waiting car and drove off. Eventually, her abductor stopped the car and told her to sit up. He removed the gag and said, quote, I don't know if you realize it or not, but you've been kidnapped. End quote. She told him that her family didn't have any money. He then told her that her employer, Shipways Estate Agents, would be paying her ransom. He took out a tape recorder and told her that she would read what he had written, and the tape would be sent to her boss, Kevin Watts. At 6pm, the vehicle Stephanie was being transported in came to a final stop. He dragged her impatiently across a gravel driveway, still bound and blindfolded. She heard a heavy metal door opening. He pushed her into a filthy workshop and sat her on a chair. He secured her with a thick rope and handcuffed her. He told her to remove her clothes as he had other clothes for her to wear. She refused. He then asked her, what about Susie Lampla? This stopped her in her tracks. Of course she knew who Susie Lampla was. Everyone knew about this case. It had been headline news and was widely publicised. Susie was an estate agent who had been abducted by a man she had met at a showhouse viewing five and a half years earlier in July 1986. She was presumed murdered, but her body was never found. Stephanie later said, quote, If he was trying to frighten me, he was doing a damn good job. End quote. I'm going to give a content warning here, as this next section contains references to sexual assault. If you prefer not to hear this, please skip ahead several minutes. The man once again threatened Stephanie with a knife, and this time, with Susie's case clearly in her mind's eye, Stephanie appeased her attacker and undressed. The man pulled Stephanie's hands over her head by a chain connecting the handcuffs. He then pushed her backwards until she was lying flat on her back on a mattress. According to Stephanie, the man then crawled on top of her and proceeded to rape her, repeatedly biting her face, neck and chest. She was still blindfolded. She told herself that she wasn't going to scream. She decided, quote, If you're going to kill me, then so be it. But you're not going to go out in any glory. End quote. When he had finished, he silently wiped her down with a damp cloth and instructed her to change into the men's clothes he had set out for her to wear. Stephanie told producers of the Crimes That Shook Britain program that the rape had completely changed her, as she felt so dead inside. As a consequence, she was no longer afraid. She said that her attacker had already done everything he could do to hurt her as a woman. She said that she now felt indestructible and no longer cared what he did to her next. He said to her, I hope you're not claustrophobic. She shrugged her shoulders and answered no. And he said, quote, that's good because you're going in a box within a box, end quote. 
her abductor had constructed a crudely constructed wooden box inside a wheelie bin, or trash can for American listeners, and placed it horizontally in the far corner of the workshop. He forced her into the makeshift coffin, but it was too tight and she struggled to fit. This seemed to frustrate her captor, who insisted that she had to get inside. Once inside, he told her that there were boulders on top of the wheelie bin, and if she tried to move, they would fall on her head and crush her to death. He pulled her hands above her head via the handcuff chain and angled them to the left, where they were attached to a metal bar that sat across the top of the box. Stephanie described herself as being in a corkscrew position, twisted and in pain. He pushed something sharp up her right trouser leg. She told him that it really hurt and he said, good, they're supposed to. He explained that they were electrodes. He told her that if she moved around in the box, they would electrocute her and kill her instantly. He secured the lid of the wheelie bin with a padlock. Stephanie said that as the night wore on, she didn't care if she lived or died anymore. She felt nothing. As the morning of the second day approached, Stephanie was succumbing to hypothermia. Her captor had warned her not to pull in the metal bar so as not to activate the boulders. As her arms grew more and more numb, their weight was pulling down on the bar. Eventually, her body went numb as she shivered in the box and her entire body just dropped, pulling on the bar. The boulders stayed in position. Stephanie says that at that stage she, quote, didn't really care if that bar came down. I didn't want to be there for him in the morning, end quote. She says that on that first night she saw a bright light within the box. She told herself that she was crazy. She was lying in a black box with a blindfold on. And now she was seeing a light. She says that inside that white light was the face of Christ. Stephanie was not a religious person and didn't go to church, but says that she felt quite privileged to have seen this. She felt at ease and for a time believed that she may even have died, but she had simply fallen asleep. The next morning she believes that her abductor was shocked at how pale and sickly she was and how close to death she must have been. He sat her on a chair and gave her a cup of tea, which he abruptly took away from her when she complained about how cold she had been overnight. He then knelt before her and started rubbing her arms and hands to warm them up. It was then that Stephanie saw that he had a spark of humanity in him, and she decided to use that to build a sense of rapport. She believed that this would make it more difficult for him to kill her. One day, midway through her captivity, she said something that made him laugh. He commented that he was going to have to get rid of that. Still blindfolded, she asked him what he was referring to. He told her that he had a wheelie bin in the corner that he had intended to use to remove her body. She was reminded that she was absolutely and completely at his mercy. She later said that she was always in fear for her life. She thought that, yes, he could get the money, but he could also kill me. 
while she was confined to the box within a box at the back of the workshop, her abductor opened for business as usual. Stephanie could hear voices and music and her abductor ringing up purchases on the till. His wife even dropped by to give him lunch one day. She says that she had considered screaming and shouting for help, but worried what if he heard her and they didn't. She credits her survival with being compliant, as she did what she was asked and expected to and didn't give him any reason to harm her. At that time, she didn't know that she wasn't his first victim. While Stephanie was confined to the workshop, police and her family were frantically searching for her. Within two hours of her abduction, Stephanie's colleagues became concerned that she hadn't yet returned. This was meant to be a routine house viewing that shouldn't have taken more than 30 minutes end to end, even for the most enthusiastic of clients. Her colleagues Kevin and Jane drove by the property on Turnbury Road and saw that her company car was still parked outside. They assumed that the appointment had run longer and maybe she had taken lunch directly afterwards. They reasoned that she would be back at the office soon enough. At 12.22pm, the receptionist at Shipways Estate Agents received a shocking call on the main office line. A man claiming to have abducted the company's newest employee was demanding a ransom of £175,000 sterling. She was told to expect a package with a ransom letter and further instructions very soon. Kevin Watts was informed immediately and in turn contacted his own boss to decide what their next move should be. This situation was bigger than the two of them. Despite receiving explicit instructions from the kidnapper not to involve authorities, both men agreed to contact the police. They contacted the West Midlands Police to report the situation and to advise them that they were not supposed to know about the crime or have any involvement in the case. Yet this caveat seemed to be ignored by all involved in the investigation. Within five minutes of the crime being reported, uniformed officers had arrived at both the Turnbury Road property and also at Shipway's offices, fully visible to the public and to anyone else who could be watching. Police examining the crime scene found evidence of a struggle in the upstairs bathroom. There was blood in the bathtub and other forensic evidence scattered throughout the top floor. Former Detective Chief Superintendent Bob Taylor of West Yorkshire Police, who worked on the case, described the situation for Stephanie, who was now missing and presumed abducted as grim. Stephanie's parents, Warren and Betty, were informed of their daughter's missing and endangered status. Police assigned a family liaison officer to stay with the family for the duration of their ordeal. Fully aware that this could mean Stephanie's safe return or the alternative, that she could be dead and that they may never recover her body. An immediate media blackout was called to maximize the chances of recovering Stephanie alive. Listening devices were set up on Stephanie's family's landline phone and the phone lines of her employer. Instead of waiting for the post to arrive, police attempted to intercept any package intended for shipways directly at the postal sorting centre. 
they worked long into the night and 14 hours after Stephanie had been abducted, they finally found the package addressed to her employer. In it, they found a letter and a cassette tape. The voice on the tape stated, quote, This is Stephanie Slater. The time is 11.45. I can assure you I am okay and unharmed. Providing these instructions are carried out, I will be released on Friday the 31st of January. End quote. They played the tape for her parents to confirm that it was her. West Midlands Police had jurisdiction, as the initial crime had taken place in Birmingham. They knew that it was likely that the suspect had fled the area, and Stephanie could now be anywhere. They reached out to West Yorkshire Police to collaborate on the case. West Yorkshire Police had dealt with a similar kidnap for ransom case just six months earlier. Julie Dart, an 18-year-old sex worker, had been abducted in July, and police had received a ransom demand. Her badly beaten body was later found decomposing in a field. The ransom had not been paid. When police compared the ransom notes from both cases, they noted similarities, such as similar phrases and spelling mistakes in both. They then compared those letters to extortion letters sent to British Rail the previous year, and they became more and more convinced that they were dealing with a single suspect. At 2pm on Sunday afternoon, five days after Stephanie's abduction, her father Warren's phone rang. When he answered it, he heard his daughter's voice, but soon realised that it was recording. The message was as follows. Hello, it's Stephanie here. They have allowed me to send a message to you, just to let you know I am alright and unharmed. I want you to know that I love you. I am not to say too much, but whatever the outcome, I will always love you. Look after the cats for me. Somewhere in the middle of the recorded message, Stephanie also made reference to the outcome of a sports match that had taken place that day, so her father knew that she was still alive, at least up until that point. Elsewhere, Kevin Watts was being trained by police on negotiation tactics, for when the kidnapper inevitably made contact again. He was advised on simple techniques, such as asking questions twice so they could buy additional time to trace the call, or even to garner more details from the kidnapper. On Friday the 31st of January, a full nine days after Stephanie had been abducted, Kevin was preparing to deliver the ransom, as per the kidnapper's instructions. The kidnapper had told Kevin to go to a kiosk just inside the entrance of Glossop Railway Station at 7pm. There, he was to wait for instructions. He was given specific times that he was to be at specific places. And so began a convoluted journey, undoubtedly plotted to confuse anyone who may try to follow him. The next stop was Oxpring in Sheffield. A heavy fog had descended on the area that night hampering visibility and making it more difficult for police to follow Kevin's movements. It also made it more difficult for Kevin to keep to the kidnapper's very strict schedule, 
and to arrive on time at the next stop. It was approximately 9pm when he arrived at what would be his final destination. There, he found instructions directing him to a nearby laneway. He saw a handwritten sign with shipways on it, directing him on the correct way to turn. The heavy fog and the fact that he was in a strange and unfamiliar place, far from the police or anyone else who could help him, made Kevin feel very aware of his own vulnerability. Kevin was instructed to transfer the money from the bag that he was carrying to the bag beside the cone. When this was done, he deposited the bag on a wooden tray on a nearby wall. The wall was part of a bridge, with a 60-foot or 18.3-metre drop on the other side of it. Between the darkness, the fog and the adrenaline, Kevin hadn't noticed this detail. He left the laneway and returned to his car, not knowing if Stephanie was still alive or if her kidnapper had received the ransom. Below the bridge, camouflaged by the dark, Stephanie's abductor was waiting. He could scarcely believe his luck, or that every facet of his plan had, so far at least, come together so well. He grinned, silently congratulating himself on the cleverness of his scheme. He looked up to the bridge, confident that Kevin Watts had left the vicinity, and tugged on some fishing wire. He had earlier attached the fishing wire to the wooden tray and rigged it so that when he pulled it, the tray and its contents would fall to where he was waiting below. He now had the ransom money in his possession. He got on his moped and travelled back to his parked car before making his escape into the night. I'm going to give a content warning here as this next section references suicidal ideations. If you would prefer not to hear this, please skip ahead. It was 11pm when Stephanie's captor arrived back at the workshop. Her despair had grown so strong that she had tried to take her own life through suffocation fearing that she'd been left to slowly die in the pitch black of the box. When she heard him enter the workshop, she began shouting, Have you got the money? Please, God, let me out. He unlocked the padlock and pulled her out of the box, freeing her handcuffed wrists from the bar. Stephanie, crying and hyperventilating, collapsed into her abductor's arms. It was at this moment that she was more frightened than she had been during her entire ordeal. He told her that he was going to take her home, but she had no reason to believe that he was actually going to follow through. He returned the clothes she had been wearing on the day of the abduction and told her to get dressed. He told her, quote, I've decided that I'm going to take you home because I don't want anything bad to happen to you, end quote. A little after midnight, a red metro car pulled up two streets from Stephanie's home in Great Bar. She ran to her front door and began banging furiously on the glass. But there was no answer. Suddenly, the door opened and a blonde stranger stood in the doorway. For a moment, Stephanie thought she'd arrived at the wrong house. It was the family liaison officer that had been assigned to her family. Despite all of the time that he had spent with her parents, he didn't recognize Stephanie. Her parents ran to greet her. 
police launched a nationwide hunt for her abductor. They had few leads, but did have some key information that could help them to identify Stephanie's abductor. They had an artist impression of the suspect, and several witnesses had observed the abductor's vehicle dropping Stephanie off near her home. This, coupled with the detailed information provided by Stephanie, gave them a solid starting point. They also had the suspect's voice on tape. They had recorded his phone conversations with Kevin Watts. Three weeks after Stephanie's release, police appealed for witnesses on BBC's Crime Watch UK. They played the audio recording of the kidnapper and asked the public if they recognised it. One woman, Susan Oakes, called, identifying the voice as being that of her ex-husband, Michael Sams. When they arrived at his workshop in Swan and Salmon Yard in Newark, Michael Sams immediately confessed to Stephanie's abduction. He was arrested and charged with Stephanie's abduction and Julie Dart's murder. But who was Michael Sams? Michael Benjamin Sams was born in Keithley in West Riding of Yorkshire in August 1941. He was reportedly dyslexic and joined the Merchant Navy when he was 20. He was discharged after three years. When he was 23, he worked as a lift engineer, eventually training to become a central heating engineer, which he worked at until his arrest in 1976 for car theft and making a false insurance claim. While in his early 20s, Sam has married a woman called Susan and they had two children together. The marriage had broken down in the months leading up to his incarceration in 1976. They divorced soon afterwards. While serving a sentence for the car theft and insurance charges, Sam's developed cancer and was advised by doctors to amputate one of his legs to save his life. He used a prosthetic leg for the rest of his life. When he was released from prison, he was forced to sell his business and go back to working for an employer. He found work with Black & Decker and later started a new business where he sold and repaired power tools. He went on to marry twice more and by 1992 was living in Sutton-on-Trent with his third wife, Tina. His workshop in the Swan and Salmon Yard was located 11 kilometres away in Newark-on-Trent. Now I'm going to tell you about Michael Sam's first victim. Julie Dart was born on the 1st of March 1973 and grew up in the city of Leeds in northern England. On Tuesday the 9th of July 1991, Julie was soliciting for work in the Chapeltown Red Light District in Leeds when she was approached by Michael Sams. After his conviction for Stephanie's abduction, Sams gave a full confession on tape for Julie's murder from Full Sutton Prison in East Yorkshire. In it, he described how he pulled up alongside Julie and she told him that it was her first night out working the streets. This may or may not have been true. Either way, at the time, Julie was a young and vulnerable teenager. Shanine Bruder of the Irish Sun believes that Sams took full advantage of Julie's lack of experience and transported her blindfolded back to his workshop at the Swan and Salmon Yard in Newark-on-Trent. 
if he followed a similar modus operandi to the one he would use six months later with Stephanie Slater, he likely also sexually assaulted Julie before killing her. Sam's omitted any references to sexual assault from his confession, and later even denied that he had sexually assaulted Stephanie. He placed Julie in a makeshift wooden box and chained her to the ground. He had used his electrical engineering skills to attach a wired alarm to the box. Later, while alone in the workshop, Julie managed to free herself from the box, but found herself unable to escape the workshop. Before long, Sam's, who had been alert to the tripped alarm system, returned. To punish Julie for her escape attempt, or just as an act of sadism, he hung her from a roof beam with a chain. The day after her abduction, Sam's lowered the teenager from the roof beam and forced her to write dictated letters. This included a letter to her boyfriend Dominic and one to the police with a ransom demand. In the letter to the police, he demanded a ransom of £140,000 sterling, or he warned the hostage would never be seen again. Sams knew that the likelihood of being paid a ransom by the police was slim to none. He was making a demand that simply could or would not be met, which begs the question, was the money even part of the motive or simply a ploy to bring him to the attention of the police? Sometime later, Sams beat Julie to death with a hammer before strangling her. He wrapped her body in a sheet secured with a rope. He later removed her body from the workshop, concealed in a wheelie bin. He dumped her body in a field near Grantham in Lincolnshire. Her body was discovered ten days after she had gone missing. In his confession, Sams said that when he set out to kidnap Julie, quote, there was only one intention, and that was to kill her, end quote. Clinical psychologist Paul Britton interviewed Sams after his arrest. He advised police that Sams abducted a sex worker as sex workers are easier targets and often willingly get in the vehicles of strangers and chillingly that it was a practice run until he could perfect his technique and ritual. Britton suggests that he left Julie's body where she could easily be found to taunt police and for him to be taken seriously as a worthy foe. Sams continued to demand the ransom even days after he had murdered Julie. He sent multiple messages to the police, including one that stated, quote, Prostitutes are easy to pick up, and I won't spend any more time in prison for killing two instead of one, end quote. In addition to the violent abductions of Julie and Stephanie, Sams also attempted to extort £200,000 sterling from British Rail. He wrote letters demanding money or else he would cause a train derailment. While they took these threats seriously, British Rail did not submit to any extortion attempts by Sams. He also attempted to blackmail several supermarkets, threatening to poison food items. But ultimately, nothing came of this. He abandoned these extortion schemes to concentrate on the abduction of Stephanie Slater in early 1992. At the time of Stephanie's abduction, 
Michael Sams was 49 years old. The trial took place in Nottingham Crown Court in 1993. Sams admitted to Stephanie's abduction, but at first denied having anything to do with Julie Dart's death. Despite this, he was found guilty on all charges, including a sentence of life imprisonment for Julie's abduction and murder and Stephanie's abduction. At the time of the trial, Stephanie had not yet disclosed the sexual assault, as she didn't want to further upset her mother with the details. Sams was also found guilty on four charges of blackmail of the police and British Rail. In total, he received four life sentences. Speaking of his crimes against Stephanie, the judge in the case had the following to say, quote, The ordeal you inflicted on her is something only the rest of us can imagine. However dreadful we imagine it, the reality must have been far worse. End quote. Julie Dart's mother stated after sentencing that she felt that justice had been done at last. Three days after being found guilty by a jury, Sams finally confessed to the abduction and murder of Julie Dart. Then there is the matter of the ransom money. Where was it? When he had been arrested, it had barely been three weeks since the ransom drop. Surely he hadn't had the opportunity to spend all of the ransom in that time. Police began an operation to locate the ransom money. Using ground-penetrating radar, they uncovered a bag containing £150,000 sterling. The remaining £25,000 was never found. Michael Sams remains in prison to this day. In October 1995, while serving his sentence at Wakefield Prison, Sams attacked a female probation officer with a metal spike, seriously injuring her. He received an additional eight-year sentence for this crime. He was denied parole in April 2023 and is one of the longest-serving prisoners in England and Wales. By all accounts, Michael Sams was a grubby little man who felt overlooked and underappreciated by those around him. By choosing to engage the police and major companies in extortion and blackmail attempts, he desperately wanted to be noticed and acknowledged for his perceived intellect. There was also a callous element to his personality. He wanted to dominate others, particularly women. There was a sexual component to his violence and a complete disregard for the lives of some sectors of society, such as sex workers. Stephanie possibly only survived because she humanized herself and because the other parties involved in the ransom followed his demands. If either Stephanie or Kevin Watts didn't follow the commands, or if Sams was aware that the police were involved, the outcome could have been very, very different. Stephanie was reunited with her family and freed from Sams' clutches. She should have felt relief, but in the immediate aftermath of her release, Stephanie was victimised all over again. On that final night, when Sams pushed her out of the car, she fell to the pavement and realised that she was partially blind and couldn't see properly. 
She believes that this was a direct consequence of having the tightly wrapped blindfold applying pressure to her eyes for the duration of her captivity. When she arrived at her front door and was greeted by the family liaison officer, Stephanie was prevented from hugging her parents. She later said that to police officers, quote, You're a walking crime scene. I had fibres and things all stuck to me and whatever else, end quote. She said that the police officer pushed her to the back of the room and sat her in a chair. He told her, you stay there, don't touch the arms of the chair, you sit there and don't do anything. She said that she, quote, should never have been denied just a hold of a hand to know that I was home, end quote. Stacy Kettner was Stephanie's best friend for many decades. She said that Stephanie had confided in her and had told her what had happened after she returned home. In recounting this, Stacy says that the room in Stephanie's parents' house was cleared of people. A police surgeon or whoever they called made her get undressed in her own living room on this big sheet of brown paper. Stacy recalls that the door in the Slater living room had frosted glass and Stephanie could see that there were multiple people on the other side of the door. According to Stacy, Stephanie felt vulnerable and exposed. During the initial examination, they pulled some of her hair out without telling her that they were going to do it or asking for her consent. Stacy said that there was no empathy shown to Stephanie or understanding of what she had just been through. She was seen merely as evidence that had to be collected. She said that they, quote, took her hand and cut her nails. Nothing was explained to her. There was no gentleness, end quote. The media blackout instigated by the police for the duration of Stephanie's abduction was abandoned almost as soon as Stephanie was freed. Within 12 hours of her release, the media were informed of her case and a press conference was called. Stephanie was placed front and centre at this press conference to answer questions. At this point, she hadn't even had the opportunity to give an official statement to the police. In the days and weeks after Stephanie's return, police were still searching for her abductor. They interviewed her many times and tried lots of different techniques to help her remember specific details. For the most part, Stephanie cooperated fully with everything that the police asked her to do, except for one thing. Police wanted her to participate in a reenactment of her kidnapping. They believed that it would help her to remember even more details. She refused this request. In addition to everything that she had been through, Stephanie and her family weren't even offered any counselling. They also were not connected to any support services. Stephanie was unable to return to her position as an estate agent due to the trauma that she had endured. She moved to the Isle of Wight in 1993, where she eventually opened a gift shop. In a 2011 interview, Stephanie discussed how her life had been utterly changed after her ordeal. She said, quote, Before this happened, I had a boyfriend, a job, and a company car. I had loads of friends and a great social life, but he took everything and destroyed the next 20 years of my life. But now I am ready to begin again. 
most people begin their lives in their 20s and 30s. But those years of my life were destroyed. End quote. In 1995, Stephanie wrote and published a book called Beyond Fear, My Will to Survive. It detailed her ordeal and how she overcame it. Stephanie said she wrote the book for women like her, women who are in danger. She said, quote, I wanted to speak out, a voice in the wilderness, because nothing seems to be done for women these days. Nothing has been done since I was kidnapped. End quote. It would be several years until Stephanie felt able to disclose that Sams had raped her during her ordeal. Initially, she had been reluctant to share this information with her family or with police. Upon hearing about this, Michael Sams said, I cannot allow this to go unchallenged. He sued Stephanie for libel, claiming that he and the woman he had abducted at knife point and kept handcuffed and blindfolded in a box had had a consensual affair. Unsurprisingly, Sams lost this case. A chance encounter with a police officer several years later led to another career opportunity for Stephanie. She began to work with police and became a victim's advocate. She trained police on how to treat and interact with survivors and gave talks about her experience. Sadly, Stephanie died of cancer in August 2017. She was just 50 years old. Former DCS Bob Turner said that Stephanie, quote, through her own instincts, saved her own life. And how admirable is that? In Crimes That Shook Britain, Stephanie had the following to say about Michael Sams. Quote, Yes, he was calculating. Yes, he did plan it to a certain extent. But he wasn't a master criminal. At the end of it, he was just lucky. You can analyse him until the cows come home. But it doesn't matter, does it? He doesn't matter. In this world, he doesn't matter. End quote. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. If you like this episode, please consider giving a five-star rating or leaving a review. It really helps let people know about and grow the podcast. Mm-hmm.